Hello, everybody, and welcome to Notre Dame International Security Center Spring Speaker Series. Today, we're lucky to have Maria Grimberg, who's an assistant professor of political science at MIT. She received her BA and BS from University of Southern California, her MA and PhD from the University of Chicago. She has pre and postdocs from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Dartmouth, and Notre Dame. And she's an IR theorist who researches why states trade with enemies, state sovereignty, and order for formation. Here to present the latter, please welcome Maria Grimberg. Um, hi everyone, um, thank you for, very much for uh, having me here today and coming to listen to me speak. Um, today I'd like to talk a little bit about change in international order. So um, as I'm sure everyone's done more or less at some point, if you conduct a brief survey of what's being said about international order, we can get just about every possible opinion under the rainbow. So the liberal order is dying. Actually, it never existed. Oh wait, it's already dead. But it's not dead, it's only collapsing. Actually, it's alive and well, doing great, but possibly not for a very long time. And all of this concern basically boils down to two fundamental questions. Where's the international order headed and what will it look like when it gets there? And at the heart of all of those questions is this idea of change. So this is sort of the animating puzzle that I wanted to figure out. What exactly does change of international order look like? And another way of looking at the same idea is this disjunction between what's happening in the real world and what we expect to see happening in the real world. So on the other, one hand, we have practitioners who are telling us that it's time to ring the alarm bells, change is happening, it's here, China is driving it. We have the creation of new um, years of influence, which according to a current understanding of international order should not be happening. We have the invention of new and alternative institutions that are changing the way that international order is being used. We have the rejection of existing rules of the international order and the definition of new ones. Change is happening. But when we look at the response to this from theory land, what we get is almost complete silence. And here the main story is well, the mechanism that gives us change hasn't happened. Therefore, there is no change. Great power war creates change in international order. Thankfully, we haven't seen a great power war. So clearly, there must not be any change. Well, that creates a bit of a confusing stumbling block because we're clearly seeing something happening in the international um, landscape. But at the same time, we can't really explain it with our existing theories. And as I tried to look into this question, I actually figured out that the reason we can't explain international change from the con our current theoretical under ideas of international order is because the dominant understanding of international order right now prevents us from seeing change. So my goal today is a bit of a wrecking ball operation. I unfortunately do not have a theory of change in international order to present for you guys yet. My goals today are a lot more humble, but I think, I think still rather important. And they are to show you that our dominant conception of order is structured to preclude change. So if we want to understand what's going on in international politics, we actually need to do a bit of destruction and start building new foundations for international order before we can start understanding change. So, um, the roadmap for today, I'll go into some of the relevant definitions because I find those to be particularly important. Then I'll explain what the dominant version of order formation sounds like. 
and provide uh, what I think are the three dominant necessary conditions for that international order, explain why they prevent change from happening, theoretically, of course, and show why we need to get rid of them in order to be able to understand change. And finally, I'll provide some ideas about where an alternative foundation for a theory of change could come from. Again, not a theory, just some initial ideas. All right, so let's dive in. Definitions. So I'm defining order as a set of agreed upon rules governing behavior in the international system. And the basic process of order formation, before we get to all of the in-depth theoretical stuff, is we have a set of states. I'm calling them the rule writers. They come together to come up with what is considered a shared goals for the order, so what they actually want the order to look like, and then they translate those shared goals into some set of desired behaviors, which are mostly codified into international institutions because of the additional um, benefits that those provide. And this separates international order from systemic effects. Um, a lot of uh, authors don't necessarily make this distinction. I find it to be important. So the system, when it constrains states, it imposes costs on specific actions compared to other actions. An order, on the other hand, specifically designates a set of behavior as preferred compared to all others, especially in situations where different behaviors can lead to similar outcomes. So a system tells us any of, an any of a range of options are plausible, an actual order tells us do A, not B. And an important part of the definition is the opposite of it. So the absence of order would be no agreed upon rules governing state behavior without any specific agreements for how states should interact with themselves. Conflict is much harder to avoid, which leads to a very important implication that given a choice between order and a lack of order, rational actors would always prefer order. So even when asked to join an order that has rather unpalatable rules, having those rules is still better than not having those rules. Right. Then um, two processes for how we can conceptualize change in international order, which I'm calling fundamental change and amendments. Now, fundamental change means uh, when one order is destroyed and a new one is built, which in itself is all well and good, but how in the world do we know when an order is being destroyed? I think it has something to do with these shared goals. So when the shared goals of an order are destroyed and a different set of shared goals is picked for a different order, we can say that the one order was destroyed and a new one is being built. And the important thing with fundamental change is it does not necessarily mean that every single rule that existed in the old order has to be changed for the new one. Some rules are so beneficial that no matter who creates the order, they're sort of maintained regardless. We usually think of these as customary international law. So for example, the right to neutrality of a state existed in some form or another since the 1700s. Orders came and went, changed all of that, but that particular rule stuck around just because it's very useful for all of states involved and it doesn't mean that fundamental change is not happening. The second type of change is amendments to order, which seek to adapt the order to new circumstances without changing the shared goals of the order. So again, fundamental um, change changes the shared goals, amendments are all changes short of that. Basically how, uh, affects how the shared goals are translated into desired behaviors. 
And this could include getting rid of rules that have gotten stale. So for example, transitioning away from the Bretton Woods system. Um, it could include adding new rules in issue areas that states just didn't know were important before. So for example, the creation of the Outer Space Treaty, or this could be um, changing the specific set of rules to make them better fit the circumstances. So for example, going from the GATT system to the WTO system. And the final aspect of definitions, I promise, um, are two dimensions on which um, order can be characterized, or rather the two aspects of order characterization that are important to my project. The first is the flexibility in the rules of the order, which just talks about the extent to which amendments are desirable in a particular order. Um, on one end of the spectrum, we have a fixed order where very little to no change is possible to the rules of the order. And on the other um, side of the spectrum, we have a fully flexible order, which means that every rule can be changed. Now, when I say flexibility, I don't mean that every rule of the order is constantly in flux. What I mean is that there's the potential for change or lack of that potential for change. So rules can remain unchanged for decades, even in fully flexible orders. What matters specifically is that they can be changed. And as is always the case with all spectrums, there are trade-offs between the two ideal types. So fixed orders provide their greatest benefit from predictability. Rules that never change, if rules never change, there's never any confusion about which rules are appropriate and what will or will not spark a conflict. However, a fixed order also has a hard time adapting to changing conditions in the world because again, no amendments. A fully flexible order, on the other hand, is highly adaptable. However, when these changes happen, they might not reflect the interests of the states that paid the price to build the order in the first place. And that becomes important later on. The second and last dimension is the extent to which leaders are constrained by the rules of the order. So at one end of the spectrum, we have a binding order where no one is above the law. Even the states that create the rules are equally responsible for actually following those rules. This is what we hope a domestic order in a rule of law society is always going to look like. On the other end of the spectrum is an unbound order where the rule writers do as they please while enforcing the rules on other states. And again, there are trade-offs between these two positions. So a binding order the rule writers, they cannot take advantage of short-term gains that come from breaking the rule, because again, they are themselves bound to a rule. However, this does come with a lower maintenance cost, which just refers to how costly it is to enforce the rules of the order. An unbound order, on the other hand, the rule writers do get to enjoy the short-term gains that come from the breaking rules at opportune moments, but this comes at a higher um, maintenance cost. All right, that's all for definitions. And now I'd like to move on to a brief overview of what our dominant conception of international order looks like. And that dominant conception is a fixed binding international order. So it starts with three necessary conditions. First, we have the reordering moment, which tells us that order is built at the end of great power wars. So think World War I, World War II kind of events. Second, um, the leading state, which is the state that is, has the most capabilities at these reordering moments, this leading state rests on a declining power base, which means that it is at its most powerful now, and its power will only decrease going forward. And third, 
weak states have an inherent leverage over the rules of order, which stems from their ability to choose to join the order or not. So since rules themselves are pointless if no one follows them, the leading states have to incentivize weaker states to join the order, otherwise they have a bunch of rules and no followers. These three conditions together provide the incentives for building a fixed binding international order. Specifically, the reordering moment creates the incentive for urgency, so to build an order and build it quickly. So the last order was destroyed by the major power war, there's a vacuum that needs to be filled, and if it isn't filled, the next moment of order change can only come at the next great power war, which everyone is very anxious to avoid. This provides us also with the only mechanism for fundamental change that we have in this type of order conception, and that is that fundamental change comes from great power war. And this is also the same kind of great power war that nuclear weapons prevent us from ha having more or less from now on. Now, the second condition, the declining power base, gives the leading state um, a reason to make sure that the order is a fixed one. The set of rules that it can create, that it can negotiate when it's at its strongest position will be the most beneficial to this leading state, which means that as time goes on, any renegotiations will only give it an order that would be less favorable to it which means that as soon as the most favorable rules for the leading state are created, the leading state wants to lock them in. It wants to set those rules in stone and make sure that there are no more amendments to the rules because any amendments would again be very bad for the leading state. The third assumption, sorry, the third condition of the power of the states um, tells us why the leading, um, the binding fixed international order has to be bound. So that's actually the price that the leading state has to pay in order to create a fixed order that gives it the benefits that it wants. Weaker states know that the order they're joining is going to be fixed because again, there are no amendments going to be possible to the order. And in order to join an order that is not the most beneficial for them and cannot be changed, they have used their leverage in order to get something out of it. And the something they get out of it is the restraint on the power of the leaders. The leaders credibly commit to make sure to not abuse the weak states, and that creates a binding fixed international order. And the binding fixed international order, therefore, in itself houses these two assumptions, that fundamental change comes from great power war, and that there should be well, to be generous, let's say very little room for amendments to that particular order. And this foundation for international order in itself tells us why it's very hard for theory to explain change in international order at the moment, mainly because it is written out of our theory as we understand it. Now, um, if we examine each of these conditions in turn, we'll see that none of them are actually necessary for order creation. And that's what I'll be doing next. But just to give you a sort of a bit of a, a good side, bad side on this. On the bright side, this does mean that the theoretical aspects that are preventing us from under understanding change are not really necessary. So there are no binding constraints. But on the flip side, this does mean that we need a different um, foundation for order in order to start grappling with change to international order. And now I'll go through each of the assumptions in turn. So the reordering moment. Order is formed at the reordering moment, which happens only at the end of the Great Power War. The old order is destroyed, leaving states with a lack of order. 
Um, as mentioned in the definition, order is always preferable to a lack of order. So this means that states have a reason to build something new. According to the dominant conception of order, states can use the momentum of their wartime alliances to find considerable areas of agreement over what the new air, um, order should look like. However, this goodwill is fleeting. Um, states start thinking about their diverging national interests. They start focusing on themselves as opposed to the shared goals that they're trying to build into the order. So the longer the states wait to build an order, the longer it is, uh, the harder it is for them to come to an agreement. So there's reason to build and there's reason to build fairly quickly. Of course, um, there's a problem with using, using this as a foundation for international order. And that problem is mainly that it relies too heavily on war as a mechanism for change. So common interests, the kinds that we need for creating order, do not actually only appear, uh, materialize at the end of wars. If we examine uh, you know, even the last couple of um, centuries of human history, we have a lot of times when states manage to come together and come up with rules for themselves to follow, or rules that govern their behavior, they didn't require a war beforehand. So I have a list of some examples here, and this list only focuses on conventions when states actually manage to come to an agreement. There are many more instances of attempts at order creation that have failed to produce a lasting result. And in much of the theory on international order formation, these things are ignored. But to me, that seems a bit like selecting on the dependent variable. So we're only looking at instances of success and that's, I think, clouding a bit of our judgment. Not to mention that many of the order formation exercises that did occur at reordering moments actually failed to produce a lasting result themselves. So notably the League of Nations, the solutions that states created in order to prevent war in that convention did not particularly well, they never actually much materialized. And more to the point, some of the more durable um, international rules that are in effect today were created outside of reordering moments. So specifically the Non-Proliferation Treaty and um, the WTO. Um, so what happens if we actually remove this condition from our theorization of international order? Well, the most important thing is great power war is no longer necessary for order to change. So again, on the bright side, that means that if China wants to change the rules of order, we don't need to go through a cycle of global destruction to accommodate those changes, which is kind of good for the world. On the flip side, the changing preferences of great powers become a lot more important to order and order maintenance, since if order is a lot more flexible, then a lot of the times the preferences of great powers matter a lot more than they did in the previous conception of order formation. Additionally, if order is not created only at these reordering moments and the state it can be created at any point of time, this gives us some indication of why order creation projects have failed in the past. So states have simply, states who have a stake in the proposed rules simply take their time. They wait until they can get to a better bargaining position to see if they can create better rules for themselves later on. Moving on to the second assumption, the declining power base. So the second necessary condition in the dominant conception of international order is that the leading state sits on a declining power base. The Great Power War, which the previous condition told us has to precede order formation, creates a power hierarchy amongst the states involved in that war. At the very bottom, we have the states that lost the war. Um, then we have the winners who fought in the war, but fought the war on their own territory. 
they're better off than the losers, but they're not exactly in the best position. The true winner is the offshore member of the winning coalition. The state that was part of the winning coalition, but managed to have most of the war not fought on its territory. And the reason that it's the true winner is because it doesn't have to recover from the destruction of the war. This places it at the height of its power. And we're talking relative power compared to other states. And um, as the other states start to recover from their war, their relative power increases, which necessarily means that the power of the leading state decreases, which puts the leading state in a position of at the end of the war, it has the most power it can have, and this power is decreasing henceforth. What this means for order formation is that the leading state now has very strong incentives to set the rules of order in stone. Um, while it is the most powerful state, it can negotiate the most advantageous rules for itself. Over time, however, as its power declines, any subsequent renegotiation will make the rules less favorable for the leading state. So in essence, the order it creates at the reordering moment is the best possible order it could ever have. And in order to make sure that the rules never change and the order becomes less favorable, it wants to lock in the existing rules. It wants to create a fixed order one that allows for very little room for amendments. And this preserves the beneficial order that it negotiated at the reordering moment. However, relying on this condition as a foundation of international order is, as you might expect, problematic. So I'm certain that you've all very likely read really good critiques on lock-in, um, specifically um, Randall Schweller. Um, so the idea being that the process of locking something in is very hard and it's not entirely credible. But that's actually not the crux of my problem with this condition. I think that even if we were to assume that perfect lock-in was entirely possible, this would still be a problematic assumption on which to build um, international order. So first, if we stick to the reordering moment condition for the time being, the power trajectory of the leading state depends greatly on the strategy that the leading state chooses at the end of the war. Uh, which means that there's reason to believe that the leading state can actually be increasing in power as opposed to decreasing and thus have no reason to lock in a certain set of rules immediately. So the just so story that the dominant conception of order relies on basically necessitates that the leading state turns away from the world completely. And I mean complete political and economic isolation so that not even um, the United States actions after World War I would, would technically speaking fit this description. But the leading state can actually choose to engage with the recovering world, world after the war. And frequently that's exactly what it chooses to do. And there are many options for how it can engage with the world. Um, while it's unpopular to mention such strategies in our modern civilized world, the leading state could plausibly conquer easy prey after the great power war. And this leads to a potential power boost. The leading state could also make itself an integral part of the recovery of the other states, channeling a sizable portion of the benefits uh, from that recovery towards its domestic markets. So this is what the Marshall Plan did for the United States. And this also makes sure that the leading state is maintaining its power position while the other states are recovering from their post-war um, situation. Finally, the leading state can, surprise, surprise, create a set of rules in the international order that help maintain its power position. So it can channel the distributional gains in such a way as to offset its relative decline, at least for some considerable amount of time. 
So overall, there's considerable reason to doubt that the leading state will be declining in power at the reordering moment. And no inevitable decline means no incentive to create a fixed order. Um, if we start, um, if we remove even the reordering moment assumption from this uh, uh, ideas, then it becomes completely impossible to know what the power trajectory of the leading state is. So since order can be created at any point in time, the leading state can also be at any point in its power trajectory. And I'm very partial to the argument that it's impossible for states to predict the future. So a state will never know when it is at the zenith of its power. So it will never know when the ideal time to lock in an order will actually be. Um, the implications of removing this um, assumption from theorization of international order is quite simple. And that's that there really isn't an incentive to create a fixed order. And if we remove all of the incentives to create a fixed order, then we're allow reintroducing back the potential for amendments to order, which gives us some space for change to at least be theoretically possible in international order, which is good when you're trying to explain change. The third assumption and final um, is the condition that, sorry, the condition um, that the weak powers actually have some bargaining leverage when it comes to negotiating order. And this bargaining power cannot actually come from their capabilities because again, they're weak states, they don't have that many capabilities. But according to the dominant conception of order formation, they do have an ace in their hand. And that comes from the fact that they have a choice about joining the order or not. And it's this choice that is very important. Because again, rules without any followers are meaningless. And if the uh, weaker states are the ones who get to decide if they join or order or not, they are the ones who get to spoil order formation or not. And this gives them leverage, which they use to extract concessions from the leading state. And the main concession thereafter is the restraint on the arbitrary use of power of the leading state. From the point of view of the leading state, well, from any state really, it doesn't want to limit its own power. It wants to be able to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants to. However, this is the price the leading state has to pay in order to create a fixed order that locks in all of its benefits. It has to restrain its own power, making the order bound. Um, and it has to credibly commit to be bound by the same rules that it imposes on others. And thus, in, this incentivizes the weaker states to join the order that they themselves know they will not be able to change in the future. And as you might expect at this point, this too is a faulty foundation on which to build international order. First, it very much overestimates the extent to which the weaker states have a choice in the matter. First, um, uh, if we're holding to the reordering moment assumption, the real choice that the weaker states face is between order and a lack of order. So again, the war destroys the last order, the leading state provides us with an idea of what the new order can be, and the weaker states um, can have a choice between joining this new order that the leading state provides, or they can choose to live without any rules governing their interactions with the stronger states, which means higher probability of conflict, higher probability of um, war, higher probability of all sorts of bad things happening that order is meant to prevent against. So as we discussed in the definition section, rational states always prefer order over a lack of order, even when the rules that they're being proposed are very unfavorable to them. 
So the choice for the weaker states is really no choice at all. They accept whatever order that they're being offered. Now, of course, this does not mean that the weaker states do not try to negotiate for any concessions that they can get out of the leading state. Of course they do, they'd be insane not to. The point is only that they don't have any inherent leverage stemming from their ability to spoil order creation. Um, second, this also assumes that states, all states do in fact have a choice, which not all states do. Some states have the misfortune of living in strategic locations or having access to strategic resources or worse yet having symbolic importance to stronger states. These states really just don't get much of a choice. It's very hard to think of Germany or Japan having a choice about joining the Western order being created by the United States for the conduct of the Cold War. It's also very hard to think about Poland or East Germany having much of a choice about joining the Eastern um, order being created by the Soviet Union at the same time. Finally, if we remove the reordering assumption, then we can reconceptualize this condition to be um, sort of to have the leverage not stemming from their ability to join the order, but having the leverage stemming from weaker states, having the choice to exit the order and potentially join a different one. Since leaders do need followers and the weaker states, based on the dominant conception of order, have this ability to leave, the leading state would still have to pay attention to the interests of the weaker states. Except, not really. So theoretically speaking, we have this idea called discipline, where leading states can legitimately use violence to return the weaker states to the fold, make sure that they're following orders. And this can be very much used to prevent states from exercising their ability to exit, thus deterring any actual exit and preventing states from having much of a choice. And practically speaking, we've seen such a, um, what happens when states do attempt to switch sides. So Hungary experienced this um, when it tried to leave the Soviet order in 1956. And many Latin American states also felt the hand of American discipline when they made gestures to attempting to use their so-called leverage. The implication of removing this condition is also fairly straightforward. It means that the order does not have to be bound. So the leading state does not have to pay such a high price for the participation of weaker states in the order. In fact, there really isn't much of a price to pay for that participation at all. An additional implication stems from um, how the interests of the weaker states are being respected within the order. And specifically, this is relevant when there are two opposing orders, so like there were during the Cold War. The harder it is for states to switch between different orders, the less restrained the leading state can be with its weaker allies. And this seems to be quite irrespective of the relative power shifts of one getting a little bit stronger and the other a little bit weaker. When weaker states are most threatened from the outside of the order, they have the least amount of voice about how they're going to be protected within their own order. All right, so that basically covers the dominant conception of international order. It's built on these three conditions and all three of these conditions um, are rather faulty foundations on which to build international order, not to mention that they all prevent us from actually seeing change in international order, at least from the theoretical um, side of things. So what happens if we try to remove these conditions? Uh, what foundations could we possibly build order on? 
this is so this is where I'm starting with. Um, in the flow that I presented to you before about the general idea of how order is being created, we have some rule writers, and I'm adding that they have some sort of worldview that gets them to an idea of what the ideal order should look like. And there could be several of these. When they put together and negotiate um, the actual order that will be uh, used in the world, they have some sort of lowest common denominator amongst what they can agree on, which creates the shared goals for the order, which is then written out as desired behaviors, which are then codified in international institutions. Based on the definitions I provided before, this is where I see fundamental change in amendments. So again, fundamental change is something that affects the shared goals of the order, and amendments are changes that are happening at a lower level that amend the order but do not actually change the shared goals. So given that the amendments to order do not affect shared goals, they only affect how those shared goals are written out as desired behaviors, these, I think, have to come from the changing interests and preferences of um, the states that are writing the order. So uh, these have to be responses to shifts in the international conditions. So things like the United States not being able to conduct um, the Cold War and have the foreign policy that it wants with the Bretton Woods system imposing restraints on how much gold it needs to have on hand and how much money it can print in order to have the convertibility to gold, wanting to have a different set of desired behaviors while still maintaining the shared goal of financial stability and changing those rules. Fundamental change, on the other hand, um, has to in some ways affect um, and change what the shared goals of the order are. So I see two possible avenues for this to happen. First is the change in who the rule, um, rule writers of the order are. So if we remove um, a particular state from the ranks of rule writers, or alternatively, if we add some rule writers to the ranks of great powers, we get to write these rules, that affects what the lowest common denominator of agreement can be. For obvious reasons, you know, less states can agree to more, more states can usually agree to less. Changing the lowest common denominator of what states can agree on changes the shared goals, that gets us to a different order. Alternatively, one of the states that is responsible for writing the rules could experience a change in worldview. And this, I mean, um, you know, going from being a capitalist state to being a communist state, um, going from being a liberal democracy to uh, uh, changing to a fascist state. And I, the idea is, if you change your worldview, your idea of what the ideal order uh, in the world would look like would also change, which again would affect what the lowest common denominator that states could agree on would be, which would affect what the shared goals of order are, and would affect um, all of the downstream effects. So fundamental change, I think, would have to come from these two different sources. So again, this is not yet a theory of what change in international order looks like, but some potential avenues to look through if we are looking forward to figuring out what international order looks like. And with that, I think I'll conclude so I can have more time to figure out what is wrong with this project? And I thank you very much for all of your coming questions. Thank you, Maria. Um, quick round of applause for that. Um,
Couple PSAs, the usual ones. First, the finger rules. If you have a question, please use the hand raise function um, on your reactions. And if you have a two finger that's on point, just what something's saying, please use the thumbs up um, icon also in the reactions. And I'll try and get to you though that sometimes drops off. Uh, so I'll put you in the regular queue if you raise your hand. And then if you wanna jump the queue and you don't abuse it, I'll call on you with the thumbs up. Also, um, the, the administrators will uh, unmute you when you ask your question, but we ask you to please start your video when you ask a question, um, just so Maria can have a real human interaction virtually. So first out of the gate uh, is our very own Mike Desch. Mike, would you like to ask the inaugural question? Uh, thanks very much, Maria. Um, this uh, really fascinating paper um, and uh, really stretched uh, my old brain. Uh, so that was uh, a good thing. I, I wanted to ask you three questions. Um, the first is uh, about your uh, definition uh, of order uh, being the existence of rules. And as I was thinking about that, I couldn't get over um, a concern that in a way that's sort of tautological. Uh, rules create order. We measure the presence of order uh, by rules. Um, and so I'd like you to tell me uh, why that isn't uh, tautological um, and you know why we shouldn't be uh, measuring order, or conceptualizing order uh, by some other uh, measure. Uh, and I think, my preferred measure would be uh, state behavior. Second question is, the, the paper talks about, uh, I think, a debate about a theory of rules, when you have rules. The conventional wisdom uh, you lay out uh, is one theory of rules. You're unhappy with it. It sounds like you want a different theory. But the dependent variable uh, there is rules, um, not order. Um, the third question is, I think there is implicit um, in this project, both in the conventional wisdom you're attacking, uh, but also where I think you're going theoretically, a theory of order. Uh, and the theory of order is that something about the existence of rules, the independent variable, uh, affects state behavior. Okay, um, and you know I think that's a, a reasonable argument, but there are also a lot of other theories uh, of state behavior or of order defined as particular types of state behavior uh, that I think people would uh, incline to as an alternative. Uh, to rules. Um, so how are you going to deal with that if you accept my first point that you can't define order what you want to explain uh, by rules, which is what you're using to explain it. So uh, that was my reactions. Um, and thank you very much for those reactions. Um, well, Judging by the way these questions are laid out, I'd be insane to actually accept your proposition that um, the definition of order is tautological. But even without that, I don't entirely understand why you think it's tautological. 
right? So we are defining order by the creation of a set of rules and then measuring order by the existence of set rules, which is we're operationalizing a definition by the definition. I'm not sure where the, the tautology comes in. Tautology is usually a part of an argument, not a part of a definition, no? Well, uh, you're basically defining order by the uh, existence of rules. Uh, but of course, order is what we want to explain. And there's an implicit theory behind it, which is that the existence of rules somehow shape behavior. Um, and so I guess I'm, I'm getting confused because, you know, this is uh, the points two and three. I mean, I see mm -hmm. an argument uh, about what are the, you know, the sources of changes in rules. Uh, and that's a fine thing to, uh, to want to explain. Um, but I'm also uh, having trouble accepting uh, that uh, order uh, is simply defined by rules. I mean, that's a plausible uh, theory, but there are also lots of other uh, theories of order, uh, you know, that uh, where the independent variable is not rules, uh, it's something else. So there's something, there's something unclear here. Maybe it's just in my brain, uh, or maybe uh, it's in the way you're both defining order so, as uh, being, uh, you know, measured by the existence of rules, um, and you know that there's two different things sort of going on in the paper. Uh, I think at least implicitly. Well, let me try approaching this from a different point of view. So the idea of defining order or measuring order in some ways by state behavior, I would find to be problematic because ultimately, if we could come up with a theory of order and order change, that would be the DV. It would be to what extent are states adhering to this? And this would be part of the order maintenance aspect of order formation and order change. So the dependent variable would be to what extent do states choose to conform to the rules of the order? So it would be very problematic for, I guess, from my approach to have state behavior as part of the definition for precisely the problems you're identifying. And given my point of view, rules don't have the same problem. Yeah, but uh, aren't, aren't you assuming ultimately at the end of the day Certainly, the uh, body of theory that you're attacking is assuming ultimately that rules shape behavior. That's why we care about all this. Um, rules constrain behavior. They do not necessarily right. force us to do anything. No, no, but they they affect behavior. Behavior is the uh, the dependent variable. Um, and order, at least in the you know plain usage of it, you know is a behavioral, uh, you know, uh, uh, concept um, that without rules, for example, if there's no stop sign, uh, you know, it could be just random who stops and who goes through an intersection. It could be chaos. So the, uh, the order uh, is not the stop sign. It's the willingness of you and me as the drivers to adhere to that. Now, the question is, do we adhere to that because of the traffic rule uh, or do we adhere to it, you know, out of common interest because 
neither of us wants to be in an accident, you know, so mm-hmm. it, it, the behavioral part of it, I think, is implicit in the enterprise. Um, and yet what's interesting, um, you know, in the, uh, the paper, it's, you know, assuming that rules matter and then arguing about how rules change. Is that, you know, what you want to do with this paper? Oh, absolutely. So um, the definition of order that I'm using is quite conventional um, in the literature. So the focus is always on the rules. The rules themselves define the order, how those rules affect behavior, the extent to which states follow those rules. Those are different variables. So sometimes those are referred to as legitimacy. Sometimes those are referred to as order maintenance, but those are alternative downside effects after we already have an established order. And the order itself is defined by the rules that go into it. So the order would be the stop sign. Whether or not you follow that stop sign is order maintenance or the legitimacy of the order. Hmm. Okay, well, we'll follow up uh, later over dinner. Um, All right, following up that question, next up is um, Thomas Duffy. Thomas, if you could please start your camera and ask your question. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so first off, let me uh, thank you for, a, 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 I think, an interesting and useful presentation. Um, so I, I have two questions and a comment from an old UN Security Council denizen. So my first question in, in listening to the presentation was, was how much of this lack of change you're looking at in the international system could be attributed to a roughly functioning United Nations Security Council? After all, the council was was specifically set up to, to avoid large scale large scale interstate conflict, and one can argue it, is, it has been successful in this responsibility. So that's the first question. The second question: If you accept the argument, if we accept the argument that the the council has been successful, what then do we think stasis in the makeup of the permanent members of the Security Council would suggest in that council's continued ability to perform its its avoidance of large scale interstate conflict responsibility? I understand the argument that the current permanent members have every incentive to maintain a structure that reflects a war that ended back in in 1945. But I'm interested in your thoughts about what that unchanging makeup does over time. I I guess another way to put it, have the P5 uh, succeeded in in establishing a fixed order. Uh, And then one comment um, that I'm I'm not sure, again, at least in a Security Council context, that weaker states uh, effectively constrain the permanent members. So for example, if the permanent members were to agree on a chapter seven Security Council resolution authorizing the use of force, they only need four of the remaining 10 elected members to pass a resolution. And as far as I know, we don't have any examples of elected members clubbing together to block a UN Security Council resolution. So uh, thanks again. Um, and, and just an overall suggestion that the security in listening to your presentation, that the Security Council might be the perfect Petri dish uh, for some of your work and, and there's a lot of data to work with. Thank you very much. Um, so it's a, uh, it's a very interesting question, um, which sort of touches on the empirical aspects of this. I was looking at the theoretical aspects of international order. So um, perhaps I wasn't very clear. The idea is regardless of what's going on in the real world, our theory of what's going on in the real world doesn't entirely help us explain it. So um, with the UN UN Security Council, 
I think that's what, or basically one of the very few things that a binding fixed international order actually manages to get right, but they don't necessarily get it right because of uh, any sort of theoretical correctness. I think they managed to get it right because the right, uh, they picked what the right five states would be and we haven't seen any of the great powers rising or um, to prominence that have not been in the security five um, the, sorry, the five states that are in the UN Security Council. Um, so in fact, the fact that we see a lack of change in the real world, um, to the extent that the United States Security Council is preventing it, I think most of the change that they are preventing is to a change to their own membership, right? That's their biggest, uh, biggest part of this, uh, if we would call it the fixed part of the international order. That's the part that they're pre um, preventing. Everything else, aside from the fact that the Security Council is meant to create um, stumbling blocks for any sort of action, I think uh, is not entirely part of order changes. I'm talking about it. Thanks. Uh, just one last comment. So it's interesting that uh, as a practitioner, you know, I'm always looking for ways mm -hmm. that theories and, and practice intersect. But there actually is a big UN reform movement that's, that's worth taking a look at and it might fit in with some of your research uh, because mm -hmm. I'm not going to name countries here, uh, but there are two, at least two members of the Security Council that countries look at and wonder why they're on the Security Council. They made sense in 1945, but they question now and a whole range of aspirants to take their places. Uh, but it is an interesting, uh, it occurred to me as I was listening to your excellent presentation, it was a, an interesting real world manifestation of your work. So thank you again. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. All right, our next question is coming from Dan Lindley. Dan, ask away. Okie dokie. Um, thank you very much for a great presentation. Uh, very clear. And I think you're making a great contribution by highlighting this flexibility aspect. Um, but I think to echo a little bit Mike's point, you might be making only 50% of the possible contribution here. And I'll explain that uh, a bit here. Um, I agree with Mike that order is also behavior, uh, not just one set of rules versus another. And in some sense, it seems to me like you're holding order as a constant, right? Order is a capital A followed by a capital B. In fact, I think there could be variation in the degree to which there is order in the first place. And that's the part I think that you're missing and need to highlight because a capital A can become a small B, could become very little indeed. and you know, then you're going to have to think about, well, how do you actually measure the effectiveness of an order, not just all these reams of paper, which add up to, to what? Um, so I think that's an important point. I think that's more or less what Mike was saying, but order in your view, and I think you're smart enough, there's probably a sentence somewhere in your paper that I missed uh, saying that order is not really a constant, but it certainly seems that way in your presentation, but I don't think order is a constant. I think it goes through variation. And that's an, that's an aspect of flexibility that you did not mention, the more or less amount of order measured as behavior. So maybe with that way of putting it, does that make more of a, a, a thought in your mind, a challenge? So do you mean that um, the extent to which states actually follow the rules of the order, the extent to which they conform to the order? Correct. That's certainly a large part of it. Or whether there could be two orders running simultaneously, which is a process that you kind of mm -hmm. 
talk about when you talk about, well, there's people who might resist the Chinese order, then they'll want to stick to the old US order. Well, are you still talking about order as a constant? So there's kind of a conflict there because you, it's a different entirely, it's a different beast. I see the point. Um, I, I am choosing to, <laughs> I guess, make only 50% of the contribution. So I am trying to put order maintenance on the back burner. So when I say order maintenance, I mean the extent to which um, the leading state uh, enforces the rules on other states. So that includes in itself the extent to which orders are, sorry, rules are being followed. I am trying to exclude it for the time being because I'm trying, at least theoretically, to keep the two ideas separate in order to be able to understand change as it comes from each separate side. But you are right, and Mike, if this is what you are getting at, I'm sorry that I misunderstood. Um, so there is also an aspect of flexibility that comes from the extent to which states actually follow the rules. And I think that comes from the kind of order that they're in. Right, so one of my points is that weak states don't get much of a choice about order. They get to be, they get stuck with the order that they um, that they're being offered. So if they're stuck with an order, the rules of which they don't like, I do expect there to be less conformity to the actual rules of the order and a lot more attempts to test the rules and to try to um, see where they'll get punished or where they won't. But I think that that would introduce too many complications into the critique that I'm trying to create at this point to include it. Unless I'm wrong, in which case, do tell me and I'll try to add that as well. No, it'd become a huge project with all sorts of coding issues. And you know, it'd come down to, I know it when I see it, if people are behaving according to a set of rules. And you know, that wouldn't be entirely satisfying, but it is something you should probably at least mm -hmm. fend off in your presentation of these issues because it seems to be looming large. And think about it as a next project. I mean, you phrase this thing as there's future research um, that's the way a possible escape hatch. But I think it's really important. And it does, I think, encompass a lot more of the substance than just who's written papers, replacing who's written paper about which issue area, um, you know, prevalence, domination. Or how do you measure if Chinese order is winning in the world compared to the old order? That's something that I think is really important and very related to your project. And that's, I just want to put that marker on the table and, and you can think about it, okay? Yeah, uh, will do. Thank you very much. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, next up is Huge Goltz. Huge, take it away. Hi. Uh, hi, everyone. Hi, Maria. Um, uh, I, I agree with Mike, uh, um, not about his point, which I might or might not agree about, but that this was a it's an interesting project that you know bends my old mind. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I I'm struggle sorry. extra because you know when it comes down to it, I'm a simple-minded policy guy, and IR theory is you know just at the edge of my grasp. Um, so, um, so I, I, I guess my question, what I. What, I, 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 you spent some time defining order and defining what change would look like through these different, these different kinds of change. Um, and that was helpful to me and distinguishing order from patterns of behavior, which I think is part of what's getting at some of what you said to Mike. Um, 
but there seems to me there are other pretty important concepts that you're not defining, at least for someone like me who barely understands this stuff. And I know you're resistant for good reason to having even more definitions, right? Like in your pitch and you're just you're like, oh, I'm finally done with the definition section. Yes, that's good. But, um, but I don't know what rules are and I don't know what the circumstances or conditions are that make a need to amend or fundamentally change the order. Like there are these other, like you're, you're replacing concepts with another abstract concept that's hard for me to figure out. And I can try to translate it. Like you occasionally have little examples, you know, like in your talk, you mentioned, you know, the closing of the gold window and the, you know, uh, end of Bretton Woods as a, as an example of rules changes. Um, I'm screwing around with export controls and, and trying to write something about that these days, but I just don't know, you know, what's the difference. So another thing that you talk about is foreign policy, which you dismiss as like an individual country's effort to translate the rules into its own behavior or something like that. But, but I don't know what, what, you know, so is it a rule when the United States tries to tell its allies don't trade with the Soviet Union or don't trade military related technologies with the Soviet Union? Or is that US foreign policy? And the rule is that the hegemon gets to decide who trades with whom? Or is what, I, I just can't, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to figure out, well, hey, I'm just trying to grasp what's really at stake in the conversation. And ultimately, I just like to know, why should I care at all about order? Why shouldn't I just care about the foreign policies of states and their power to try to get done what they want to do? Like, why shouldn't I just be a simple-minded realist and say, states try to do stuff, if they can, they, you know, I should take that into consideration. And, um, uh, uh, you know, if uh, I can, I can predict, I, I'm not at, the world is not chaos because I can analyze something about the capabilities of states and what capabilities actually threaten me or require a change of my behavior. So rules and why does order matter? Because I think that's the crux of it. Yeah, um, so both very fair points. Uh, it is very difficult to actually go from theory land where I live to, you know, proper, very strict, clear cut definitions of what counts as what, because again, it's a lot easier to keep these concepts analytically separate in theory land than it is in the real world. But um, so if I'm trying to think through the example you gave, right? So if the United States tells um, its allies not to trade with the Soviet Union, that I would say is not a rule, that is a foreign policy. The rule would be um, along the lines of each state is responsible for making its own um, commercial policy. Um, states are not allowed, or what were the rules at the time? So states are not allowed to uh, impose blockades, um, so those kinds of stuff. 
well, so outside of war in the sense of it constitutes a rule for actually starting war. So that's the, um, that's the rule. What states choose to do with those rules, like the United States coming up with a, a different reason for preventing trade, short of calling it a blockade or a restriction. So the development of ideas such as a sanction, that would be the foreign policy. And I, I know that that's very unsatisfactory. I know that it's very hard to translate those ideas across the different levels, um, but one of these days I'll figure it out and then I'll let you know. But on the other side, so what's at stake in the conversation? The stakes are actually what um, Dan and Mike were talking about because I'm quite convinced that different states behave differently in different types of orders. Specifically, if you have a state going from a position of weaker state to rule rider, those are very different sets of behaviors that we can expect, right? If it's rule taker versus it's a rule maker. But also within a specific order, the way that states act would be different given the kind of order that they give. And that gives the conversation stakes because if we're moving from one order to another, so if one order ends and another begins, we should expect to see changes in states behave. The way that we see sort of different systemic constraints under different uh, polarities. So, so Maria, could, could you, um, so the only order that you mention in the paper or the talk is, you know, Eikenberry's fantasy of a post-World War II order. Um, can you give some other examples of orders? Can you list five of them uh, that I might recognize? Sure. So in fact, I actually see three orders in the um, post-World War II world that I can very call one order. So there's the global order that um, included the UN and the Bretton Woods system to begin with, because the Soviet Union was in fact part of the initial negotiations for that. So that was meant to be a part of the global order. Um, when that sort of didn't quite work out as intended, we have two regional orders that formed to um, replace sort of maintenance. Um, we have the Western order that the United States uh, was involved with with Western Europe. So this is the NATO um, centered around NATO. We have the corresponding Eastern order centered around the Warsaw Pact. Um, if we're going back before that, so after World War One, we have the League of Nations that's generally conceptualized as an order centered on um, centered around the League of Nations. So that was the institution that codified the set of desired behaviors. Um, the Council of Europe is generally referred to as an order. Does that help? I can see more questions being formed. I'll answer them at dinner, I suppose. All right, let's let's move over uh, to New Haven. I think uh, Tyler Bowen. Ask away. Yeah, <clears throat> thank you. Actually, um, uh, Watertown, Massachusetts for now. So, uh, but uh, hi, Maria, thank you for presenting. I was really happy to read the paper and, and uh, see the project. I have two comments that are, I hope are helpful and then one more uh, critical question uh, then. Uh, so I'll start with the comments first. The First comment is that I see, I, I don't know if you're thinking about this as a book project, but I think it should be one because there's a lot here to unpack with, because you, you engage a lot of scholarship and it's a, it's, a, it's a question that I think deserves a book length project. Um, and with that, the second comment is that I think for like the main contribution of what you presented here today, 
that I took away was that this is something that, uh, you, you know, you note in the introduction, there's a lot of takes. Uh, it's very fashionable to say like what is happening to the liberal international order. Is it dying, decaying, growing pains? And I think you're in a strong position to say, well, the reason that we don't really have a consensus on that is because we don't really know how an order should change given, given that, uh, like given our current theories. Uh, like, because I don't think you're challenging internet, like the conceptions of order. I think you're just challenging conceptions of order change and that they're just not built to handle a current context. Um, Maybe, you know, maybe I misunderstood something in the project, but that's what I was thinking. And then the second, then now the, the question that's more critical, when I was reading it, I was, I guess this gets back to Dan's question. You know, what was, what's stopping just straight up order decay or the order or order becoming irrelevant? Because maybe there is, maybe the order doesn't change as the context changes. And because of that, it just becomes ineffectual. You can think of, you know, institutions just becoming like zombie institutions, like the World Trade Organization's appellate body just doesn't, you know, work anymore, but it's still around, it still exists on paper. Um, so I was wondering like, what, what, why, like, why does it, you know, why could that not be an outcome? Uh, thank you. Uh, this might or might not be a book project. There are many thoughts and <laughs> all attempts to put them into one article have uh, thus far failed. So we'll see. We'll see, um, yeah. Okay, uh, but so I guess the main question, um, what is stopping order from decaying? Uh, well, in essence, the states that maintain it so I don't think order decay is something that actually happens. I do think order can become irrelevant, but I don't think order decay will happen because there are some states who are very invested in the rules and they're the ones who want to maintain those rules from happening. And the um, aspect that you just brought up, so the organizations that sit around but are sort of um, zombie organizations, they don't do anything useful. In fact, so yes, obviously we have a ton of those, but what states have done is they've come up with parallel institutions. So ways for them to get at the similar ideas, similar rules only in different ways, in different forms, in a way that allows them to get a slightly more advantageous solution. So I wouldn't see that as order decay. I'd actually conceptualize of that as order change. Oh, now, okay. why we see the or, um, the institutions being stuck around instead of someone actually closing them down is a really good question. Yeah, thank you. That, that's good. All right. Um, Rose Kalanick joins us from Unsunny South Bend with our next question. Okay, hello. Uh, Hi, everybody. Um, so, hey, so uh, Maria, I enjoyed the paper and the talk. And um, I wanna say, I think it's it's cool that you wanna do big IR theory and, and order stuff. And there's not enough of that in the, in the field right now. And so I really appreciate that. Um, but I'm just gonna go straight for the critique a la, you know, Hyde Park style, um, which is, I find it unsatisfying. Um, for you to argue that 
you just want to do theoretical stuff and you're not doing empirical stuff. Um, because I think, I mean, as much as I love IR theory and IR theory for theory's sake, IR theory really needs to be tethered to empirics. It really needs to be tethered to cases. Otherwise, it just doesn't really matter. Um, if you were doing a project, and my sense is this is not what this project is. If you were doing a project that was a normative theory, right? Like, mm -hmm. hey, there are all these possibilities for imagining the world that we haven't thought of because we're stuck in these discourses that enslave us. And if we all think really hard and think of a different way, maybe we can lead, this can lead us to a better international situation, blah, 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 something like Wentian world state-ish. Like if that's sort of where you're going with it, then you don't need to have cases that you're trying to explain because you're making a, a normative pitch for how we should conceive of these things. Um, but instead, you know, you're, you're looking at a literature that is built on an empirical record, right? So people like Eikenberry, people like Gilpin, look at the historical record and say, okay, we see some regularities that we're trying to understand and explain, right? We see 1815, you know, efforts for an order. We see 1918, we see 1945, right? And they've come up with these preconditions based on, you know, what the evidence suggests exists and has happened. Right. So, I mean, I don't think you can really come in and say, well, these are logically flawed and we can imagine different logics. Yeah. OK, that's true. But there's a reason why these are the logics that stuck. And it's because these are the logics that that seem to explain these various cases over time. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like you're, you know, you're early ish in this project. Um, so, you know. Like, I'm sure there's stuff you can do with it, but I, I would like to know. Like what cases are you trying to explain, right? Like what cases could this different conception of theory explain that the current theories can't, right? Um, because ultimately, unless you, again, are engaged in like a normative project, um, I think ultimately IR theory has to come down to explaining cases, right? No, you're of course absolutely right. and. Thank you for not pushing me down the normative direction. Um, so, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, I don't think it's that's just not for me. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, as far as explaining cases, I'd love to wait until I actually have a theory to explain them with. So, for now, the extent that I can do empirics is sort of the stuff that I have in the paper where I can show the irregularities of the assumptions that as they um, sort of the, the, the logics as they exist and not matching the situations that are actually happening in the empirical pattern. So things like, you know, the Soviet Union and the United States are not actually declining when they're building these orders, that order is being built outside of post-war um, stuff. But um, I think I, I need a theory before I start trying to actually explain things, right? Well, you need both. I mean, you need, I would say you need a puzzle. And it seems like, you know, you, you might be motivated by the puzzle of what's happening right now and what's going to happen in the future, right? Um, you know, that's hard because it hasn't happened yet, or we're right in the middle of it. And so sort of how do you view that? But like, that seems to be the way that you set it up in the paper that, you know, I mean, I, I would disagree with the, I, I'm not sure I agree with the, with your characterization of the literature as such that only great power war is the, like that that's the only thing that can lead to fundamental change. Um, but just sort of setting that aside. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think it seems like you're motivated by the puzzle of the current moment. Um, 
And that's, that's hard because we're still in the moment. So it's pretty hard to explain something that, I mean, somebody else could look at it and just say, in fact, your paper starts this way. This isn't change, right? Or the order is dead or there never was an order or blah, 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 blah. Um, so, I mean, I think there has to be, you know, maybe you work on developing more what it is, what your intuition is about why what's going on now is something that current concepts can't deal with, can't understand, right? Because there's no, you know, we're not going to have a major power war, probably, that's not nuclear. People could argue with that. But um, yeah, I mean, I would, I would suggest sort of going there and trying to figure out what is it that you find puzzling, right? And what intuition can you get from that to then tether it to something that you can bounce your theory off of that's not just sort of the ether. Thank you, will do. Sure. Yeah. All right, Ben Dennison, next question, please. Great, uh, so I just had a couple of, why well, two heuristics that I just popped in my head while reading and then two thoughts that while listening to the comments. Um, the first, you know, the, the first two, I guess, these are just things that like maybe good for framing or to help to think. I don't know if they're going to be helpful at all. But while I was reading this, I kept went back to my, you know, very first pro seminar in graduate school uh, where we talked about, you know, um, the philosophy of science and like Lakatos, uh, Lakatos. And this is like, it seemed like that's what you're talking about, kind of with order, what's going on. We have this hardcore order uh, and these kind of auxiliary little pieces that we can change around. And then uh, eventually um, it degenerates and then you have to come out with a, a new type of order. So it might just be useful to think about this in terms of, you know, changing, you know, almost orders of uh, science. And it sounds very similar to uh, what you're uh, arguing. So it might be something interesting to look at. Uh, similarly, in the same sort of vein, when you talk about revolutions, we often talk about social versus political revolutions, where it's political revolutions are kind of just augmenting who's ruling, um, very briefly, but then in social revolutions, you augment kind of how everyone is being ruled. There might be another way to kind of get at this, you know, these big overarching uh, order changes versus kind of the flexibility. Um, but those are just kind of just two random things that popped in my head. The, directly related to kind of what's been talking about in the q and as an answer to uh, Gene's point about what are the stakes, I think one thing you haven't brought up yet is kind of the status questions, especially with right now, um, and asking like, what if, the, what if the international order isn't as flexible as a new rising power hopes it would be? Uh, what happens then? The kind of what is you, what role does um, how like, kind of is like the flexibility of the order versus in actuality versus what the or the, the ability to change the order versus the rising powers ac, uh, actual ability to change it? I think that's a really important question and gets at a lot of the interesting things that you brought up, uh, and I think it's there. Uh, and I think that's something that can also tie into kind of more specifics as well. It's like, this is what they thought the order would look like. And when they actually had the opportunity to maybe see how the order is get inside and see how it's all constructed, they realize it's not as flexible as hopes. Um, and I guess just the final thing uh, maybe to also add would be um, when you think all about the rules that you bring up and kind of like this flexibility and rules and you talk about like Kellogg-Briand and kind of the laws of war and the Hague regulations uh, I think it's in, there's, there needs to be something, I guess, in here about like, how does that jive with, you know, you see a lot of the great powers, they 
they create these laws of war almost as a means to prevent other people from engaging in these practices, but then they can kind of define themselves. They use kind of international legal definitions to get themselves out of it. So, you know, for what I study in occupation, you kind of find all these different like clever ways to use different terms to say, oh, I'm not actually occupying this territory. I am the territorial administrator, blah, 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 blah. Um, mm -hmm. So kind of, I'm just curious, uh, how would that fit in, is that, how does that kind of fit into your conception of order when it's almost these definitions are trying to, uh, new definitions come out to try to get them out of the legal constraints they put on themselves? Um, thank you. I'll um, take a look at the other ways that other people have tried to make this distinction. That's, that's good suggestions. It's always good to see how other people get out of uh, similar problems. Hopefully they can show me the way. Um, so your question about, uh, uh, I'm not sure I understood the first question, but it's sort of uh, what happens when a rising power has certain conceptions about what order is, but realizes that it's actually different in practice. Is that right? Yeah. So it's similar to status question. What if you know? What if they think the order is flexible? Oh, we can get there once we become powerful enough. We can change things, and they realize, oh, this isn't actually as flexible. I mean, that's one possible mm -hmm. outcome. You know, depending on how flexible the order is at the time. Or vice versa, what if the declining power thought that the order was more static than it actually turns out to be in practice? That might be more similar to where we are now. Hmm. Well, th those are uh, questions I'll have to think about because again, I haven't quite done the comparison of looking at how flexible an order is compared to how flexible that we think it is. So, so far I've done the work of looking at how inflexible theory tells us order should be and finding problems with that. So the next step would be figuring out how that actually translates, how, how people perceive order versus what they actually find order to be. So um, thank you for that. It'll be a good avenue for continuing this uh, thought process. Um, and then the second question is uh, the legalese, the how do we get the lawyers to get us to do anything and consider it to be following the rules. So on, on the one hand, I'd say that this is good because this does in fact show us that order is working, right? If you're taking the trouble of trying to avoid rules while still following the rules, it's showing us that at the very least orders, uh, sorry, the rules are in fact um, having an effect on you. In fact, I think Bull defined uh, whether or not states are following the, um, whether or not order has an effect, not by whether or not states follow the rules, but whether or not they conceive of breaking the rules while they're breaking them as something that should go into their calculus. Um, but in fact, I don't think it actually poses too much of a problem because the kinds of rules that we're talking about, the set of desired behaviors, so this is at a level high enough that it's kind of hard to legalize yourself out of it, right? So we're talking about uh, more questions along the lines of, you know, if you blockade a state that constitutes a right, a, you know, a, a, um, a right to, to declare war. Um, more practically, you're right. The states do try to weasel out of it. And that is something that I should be looking into. Okay, we've got uh, two questions in 10 minutes, so uh, let's try and be mindful of the clock, but um, not, not you, Maria, the rest of us. Um, Alana Rothkopf, would you please take the next question? Hi, thank you so much. It was really um, great to have the chance to read your paper, and I 
I quite enjoyed it. Um, I have, uh, or now my question went away. Oh, so I have one question and two just points that I guess are kind of following up on what other folks have said. One is that it was unclear to me sometimes whether the three conditions that you're talking about are three individually necessary conditions or if they're jointly necessary conditions. Because sometimes when you're talking about um, what happens when you, the consequences of removing the condition, it, it seems like you're talking about individually necessary conditions. And then I get to the end and it seems like you're actually talking about conditions that are necessary joint, only jointly. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more and clarify that. Um, second, I do think I agree with um, Eugene that I, I find myself wanting to know what rules are in like have a definition for rules. Are they norms? Are they laws? I know it's not customary international law, but customary international law is itself state practice and open juris and then often codified in some of the treaties that you're talking about later. Um, so I don't know if that's something that fits into the paper, but I, um, I find myself wanting a definition for rules, I suppose. Um, and finally, I think perhaps it would be helpful throughout the paper to talk a little bit, uh, to, to like talk about what examples of amendments to order and order formation actually look like, because there are places where, for example, you give examples of treaties like the Geneva Conventions, and you're saying, oh, well, even if you consider these to be amendments, this is why, um, you know, the, the necessary condition of war doesn't, is, is, is faulty. But I, I find myself wondering, okay, but what is the, so then what does an, um, what do you think um, an amendment looks like? What is an example of an amendment to you? Because I think it would be really powerful if you're, if you're essentially saying the existing conception of international order doesn't really even accommodate something as minor as an amendment and then show examples of what that might look like. And I wonder if, at least to me, that might even be more powerful than showing how it's not uh, accommodating um, foundational changes, if, if amendments are something that even the, the states that, that all of the, the theorists that um, talk about international order assume is possible, and then you're showing even these amendments are impossible, but I don't know if that is, but yeah, thank you. No, uh, thank you for that. Um, you're right, I, I, I should have made that a lot more clear than I have. So the three conditions, whether they should be um, separate or jointly necessary. So I think um, the order formation literature requires them to be jointly necessary. So if you take away any single one, then you don't, you no longer have the incentives to build the same type of order. Um, but I, I, I should be a lot more clear for that. I treat them sometimes separately, sometimes together, because I'm basically going through the exercise of, well, let's just pick one out and see what that does. Let's pick another one out and see what that does. But yes, they are, according to the dominant conception of order, they are jointly necessary. Um, and then for your uh, YouTube comments, so yes, I will try to figure out how to define rules without getting into tautology for Mike, because rules and order are very close, and then that gets me into all sorts of circles, but I will do it. Um, <laughs> as for um, what do amendments look like and whether or not the existing conceptions accommodate them. So um, what I've noticed is a lot of order formation literature does this hand wavy thing where they say, of course, amendments are possible. And of course they happen, but they never actually explain what they are or how they happen or when they're possible. And given the theoretical backbone on which they sort of place their theories, I don't think theoretically they can be possible. So the hand wavy stuff is just, I think, to you know, get people like me off their back. But thank you very much. Thank uh, you. Yuz, did you have a two finger on that? I, I just wanted to know, um, 
if on the first, Alana's first question, you know, if the three conditions are jointly necessary, you said they're jointly necessary kind of for a fixed bounded order, but were any of these other orders that you mentioned at different times not fixed and bounded both? Or, you know, is there flexibility to have an order that doesn't jointly require all three conditions, just not the current order? Oh, sorry, um, Eugene. So this is only talking about theory. This is what theorists think order looks like. So they say that these three conditions are necessary for order, and then they use this as an analytical lens to see what's going on in the world. But for, for every order, right? Is it like necessary for every order? So the concert of Europe had all three of these conditions as jointly necessary, or the League of Nations, or the other, you know, every order that you could conceive. If you buy Eikenberry's argument, then yes, even the League of Nations. So he says that they failed in accomplishing the end result because they couldn't right. credibly commit to it. But yes, even then, this was the end goal towards which they were striving. So, so all orders must be fixed and bounded. Okay. Not really okay, but I see I, exactly. All right, well, we have time for one more question from uh, where in the world is Fritz Heinzen? Fritz, where are you, where are you come? Oh, wait, Bologna. Are we at the two towers? Very good, that's it, Vittori. Yeah, in Bologna. Uh, all right, a very interesting paper. And I was enjoying reading it because throughout it, I'm, I'm sitting there trying to fit in what case fits this, what, what, where, how do I fit certain things in? And, and, I, and, and I very much, I, I understood where Mike was coming from, even more so Gene, and even more so Rosemary and their frustrations. And I understand that. And so Tyler ends up, I think, being correct to address all these issues. It's, it's, so it's a book. It's, it's tough to see, see this as an article with so many different interesting aspects. And, and probably because what I kept coming or kept coming up in my mind was the idea of the clash of orders you were getting, not just an international order, but in, in the Cold War, depending on which side of the German border you're sitting on, you're looking at one type of order as, as opposed to, as opposed to a, a Western-centric order or NATO order. Um, but the, the question that really jumped out for me was you mentioned early in the paper and in your talk today, and that is the rational actor. And the rational actor, uh, especially what if the rational actor in, in, in the major power uh, upholding the international order um, doesn't like order or international order is a populist, maybe is somebody who maybe doesn't even have a sense of what is international order. Uh, and in fact, uh, well, prefers chaos combined with not knowing what's order and um, all of a sudden I start to see, well, numerous problems may come up um, when there is not a rational actor. And uh, I won't describe that to any recent administrations. I'll leave that up to, to everybody's own judgment as to what happens. Um, but as the US is now trying to work with its allies and, and put order back into things, mm -hmm. I, I'd just be curious. I'm, I'm very curious how you look at that and how the rational actor fits in to, to your work. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Um, 
I do tend to start from a rational after assumption because it's a lot easier to apply logic to those as opposed to the alternative. And if I'm trying to logic through something, rationality is kind of necessary. But so if a state doesn't actually want international order, right? So if a state actually prefers chaos, then all of this, you know, just feel free to throw it out. None of this applies, none of it matters. But I don't entirely think we've ever had that particular situation where a state actually actively prefers chaos. So given the um, unnamed administration, I think the preference was for a less uh, extensive order. So order that covers basically less rules to um, allow for a lot more taking advantage of short-term interests. I think that was the goal. So not no order at all, but sort of a more sparse conception of order. I agree with you on that in a four-year administration, but what if that administration had a few thousand more votes and had a second four years? And I, at that point, I really begin to wonder about international order versus a, a desire for a chaos theory approach to it. Well, I'm glad we're not experiencing that. <laughs> but, this is all theory, so it's, it's theory. Exactly. But even then, so there are certain aspects that, there are certain rules that that administration still relied on, and it still sort of kept perpetuating. So I don't think even in an eight-year administration, this would be a complete uh, chaos theory kind of situation. I just think that we would have ended up with, if the dismantling continued, we would end up with a lot um, sparser concept of order. So there'd be a lot fewer um, issue areas that order would cover. But ultimately, I think there would be certain sets of um, rules governing interactions between states that would be kept, just because those do keep us more or less state survival. Okay, thank you. I, I look forward to seeing where this goes, book, article, whatever. It, this really was, and actually your footnotes were a lot of fun to, to sort of get a, I'm, I'm glad you had so many, to get a sense of where you were pulling from and, and, and going with all this. So really interesting. Thank you. Well, it'd be high hypocrisy if we ended on a disorderly note. So let's end on time. Um, everyone join me in please thanking Maria for bringing her material here. It's an honor to have it. Um, and thank you all for joining us and making it special. So hopefully tune in next time, which I think in two weeks time. Um, and we look forward to uh, seeing, I think, Steve Pincus from New York, Chicago. Um, but until then, our thanks to our speaker, our thanks to you, and we'll see you next time. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.